0: This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival.
1: Hello. Welcome to the International Edinburgh Book Festival to the penultimate day of what's been an absolutely amazing festival. My name is Lenny Goodings and I'm publisher of Virago Press and I've had the really terrific privilege at this festival of preparing and presenting five events and this one is my last. I want to personally thank the festival for giving me this much fun and work (laughs) and Rounding up, even tonight, has been very interesting and challenging with the great team we've got. What a brilliant team they are to work with here at the festival. I want to say a special thank you to Nick Barley, who invited me to do this, and also to Roland Gulliver, and to Jennifer Gilbranson, among so many others, including Dave, who at the last minute I said, I'd like 11 chairs on the table, on the the, uh, stage, please. Now, the first thing is, could you please turn your phones to silent for this show? And the other thing to know about this, for this show, there's going to be no Q&A. We're just going to f- fill the hour. Plus, um, I might warn you too. We might run over slightly, and but that's fine. But please hold on for the whole ride. What we're going to do at the end is retire to the signing tent, where ten out of these—sorry, um, seven out of the ten people have books to sign, and we'll all be there for drinks and more talk. So that's where you do your Q&A, if you don't mind. So, the one thing to tell you is, I'm sorry, that Sabrina Mafuz, who was supposed to be here as part of it, has not been able to get to Edinburgh, so I'm sorry about that. Now, the umbrella title for my five events was The Female Gaze, but in this event, around this very important topic, feminism, I wanted that gaze to be absolutely inclusive, because in my mind, feminism has the potential to be transformational for us all. It does not aim to suppress one lot in favor of another, nor to see any gender as superior to another. In fact, that's exactly what feminism is fighting against. In my mind, feminism, put absolutely plainly, wants to see the best for everybody. It's absolutely as complicated and as simple as that. The word, the label, feminist, causes angst, for many who see it not as embracing equality, not as in furthering, furthering the cause for all people. I'm well aware of that, and I think they're wrong. <laughs> Personally, I think anyone right-minded should call themselves a feminist. And I think it's the job to change the world is down to us all. Come on in, I say. I'm happy to share the label feminist. As, and as the writer Eva Figes said, Now and in the future, patriarchal attitudes will benefit no one, least of all the men. But we also know that as well as there being contention about the word feminist, there are also views on who can call themselves a feminist. Can a man? Can a transgendered transitioning person? Is it strictly a female preserve? But we've debated all of this before. Many times. So, for tonight's event, I wanted to mix it up a bit. To challenge, to be playful, to be provocative, to be celebratory. With a performance I have named, Why I Call Myself a Feminist. And because I believe in the arts, because I believe that's where we can find and experience real truth, real life, I've asked 10 people, authors, poets, playwrights, performers and activists, to give us their answer to that question. And I'm going to call them up one by one to this microphone. Tonight, we have speaking, and in this order, is Val McDermott, Andrew Hagen, Caroline Criado Perez, Natasha Canapé Fontaine, Chris Brookmeyer, Joe Clifford, Robin Robertson, Emma Laurie, Nish Kumar, and Elif Shafik. So let us begin. First is Val. Val McDermott comes from Fife and now lives in Edinburgh. She began her brilliant career as a crime novelist in 1987 and has since published 27 novels, short stories, non-fiction, and a prize-winning children's book, and deservedly won many prizes for her writing. Val.
0: Thank you. Good evening. I often get asked these days to speak at academic conferences because crime fiction has become something about which people write PhDs. And I've also discovered that when you do these keynotes, sometimes they want to publish them as a paper, and you have to have an abstract at the beginning of the paper. My abstract for why I call myself a feminist is, well, duh! I grew up in Fife, which is very different from the rest of the central belt of Scotland because for a long time it was physically isolated because of the Firth of Forth and the Firth of Tay. It was a place that was in some respects quite parochial and insular, but in other respects very radical politically because of the miners, shipyard workers, the fishermen. And although it was quite radical politically, it wasn't very radical in terms of gender politics. However, it never occurred to me not to be a feminist. My father was a a great, staunch Burns man. He was the lead tenor in the Bowhill People's Burns Club concert party. And he knew that a man's a man for all that. But in our household, the term man also embraced woman. He taught me that I was as good as anyone else and that I should never call any man my master or any woman for that matter. I went to a school uh, where they taught me that you can be what you want to be. They made the girls in their care think about a wider picture than the traditional roles that were available to young girls at that time, where mostly you got offered being a nurse or being a typist or doing domestic science. The school I went to said, yeah, that's all fine and good, but you can also be a scientist, you can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor, you can be a teacher, you can be what you want to be. And another aspect of early feminism, I suppose, was my mother. Um, Now, this might seem quite trivial uh, in terms of bigger struggles, but my mother was a keen member of Kirkcaldy Bowling Club. And one of the things that pissed her off royally was that women were only allowed to bowl at certain times of the week. The men could bowl any time they wanted, but the women were confined to certain restricted times when it was thought that men wouldn't be wanting to bowl. And she took this as her struggle. And for years, she fought the good fight to make it possible for women to bowl whenever they wanted to. And now in Kirkcaldy Bowling Club, women can bowl whenever the hell they want to. (laughs) And I was proud of her for that. So I grew up with this general sense of possibility and availability, even in Fife. And for me, it was a genuine shock when I emerged into a wider world and discovered there were so many people who just didn't get it, who didn't understand the principle of equality, who didn't seem to believe it was right that we should all have the same rights, the same opportunities, and the same obligations. I found it bewildering. Things have got better over the years. Um, We've had legislation back in the 70s, and as a union official back in the 70s, I was one of the people who struggled to make that effective in the workplace. And it did take time, but gradually things changed. Things got better. And change is still happening in a positive way. I read a story in the papers just a couple of days ago of a survey that's just been done on women's salaries. And for the first time... Women in their 20s are earning, on average, more than young men in their 20s. This is the first time that there's been a a comparison of two groups based on gender where the women are actually doing better than the men. So I think that we're definitely moving in the right direction in that respect. In Scotland, we have a situation where the three main political parties are all led by women, And if you have any experience of Scottish politics at all, you will know that the tenor of political discussion in this country is very different from what you see at Westminster. You don't have a bunch of guys shouting, yeah, yeah, boo sucks, every time somebody (laughs) expresses an opinion. You have women leading parties who have respect for each other. They understand difference but they also respect each other's right to be different. And they respect each other as women, as politicians. We are showing that there's a different way of doing things. And I think that's a positive thing too. You have... Things like a hashtag of everyday sexism, where people complain when they see things that upset them. Uh, and all of these things are really good and positive things and move us in the right direction. And it's easy for us to take those positives here in our world of Western privilege. But out there, there are an awful lot of places where people are a lot less privileged than we are in every respect, and particularly the women. So the battle is far from won, even if in some corners of our society, things are getting better. And we're not exempt either. One of the things that has disturbed me most in recent years is what's happened with the provision that the internet provides for anonymity. Anonymity online seems to have gone directly towards misogyny online. Everywhere online it seems there are pockets of vile vitriol, there's trolling. And almost exclusively the targets of this are women, and almost exclusively the perpetrators are men. We've seen things like revenge porn invading our screens, changing the attitudes of our young people towards relationships. Is that depressing? You bet. At my heart, I'm an optimist. I think we are making things better. And I think that feminism is a force for continuing to make things better. And why am I convinced of this? Well, even though I support Wraith Rovers, I still say, I am a feminist because I like to be on the winning side. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Phil. Next, I've invited Andrew O'Hagan. Andrew lives in London, but he's from Glasgow, and following on pre- two previous nominations, his latest novel, The Illuminations, has been long-listed for the Man Booker Prize. He was voted one of Granta's best young British novelists in 2003, and it's all been good since then. He comes garlanded with literary awards from both sides of the Atlantic. Andrew. I
2: grew up in a town not 60 miles away from here on the West Coast, and during the early 80s, um, struggling as I was to make arguments in my house about the value of feminism, I discovered walking through Irvine Newtown one day that a new shop had opened, an enterprising man had opened a shop called What Every Woman Wants. On the way to school then, every day, I suffered a sort of existential crisis about the relationship between the bliss of commercialism and the wants of women. And I would take back arguments to the house, which tended to fall on not entirely convinced ears at the time. I've written something for you that picks up on that. I should say that things did improve very quickly in the way that Val and her optimism has allowed us to invest faith in because within a year of What Every Woman Wants opening, they opened a shop called What Everyone Wants. (laughs) Uh, And I remember coming into the kitchen uh, wearing one of the bags from What Everyone Wants and parading up and down the kitchen to my mother's complete disgust. (laughs) So this uh, is the first piece of doggerel I've ever written intentionally. I should say, it's called What Every Woman Wants. No son of mine was ever a feminist, reading de Beauvoir in the bath, eating grapes like a lesbian queen, downing the patriarchal patriarchy with Bristol cream. No son of mine wanted equal pay in the snowblind winter of my discontent, doing his homework with a bookie's pen, and making a case for paying the rent in bags of cement from the life to come. No son of mine took a provident cheque to send his mother on a trip to Greece, a writer's retreat in a house of mirth, a month of olives to keep the peace, and met the payments with his paper round. No son of mine brought Norman Mailer to the cheap retailers where I worked the nights and told me all about Satan and sex while I stuck my hand down the legs of tights looking for some new kink in the toe. (laughs) No, no son of mine was ever a feminist and looked through the banister and boxer shorts that night of the Tupperware party when the girls drank Blue Nun and danced in their slippers, my boy smiling at the lack of men. Then, taking a handful of breakfast bowls, pink and blue like a day in Sparta, he bunged them into the microwave to see them melt into early Jeff Koons, saying, "Good night, ladies, and death to them. Cremate your aprons, your prams, and him." No son of mine thought Margaret Thatcher was a Yorkshire serial killer in drag. (Laughter) Plying her trade on Greenham Common, her kitchen cabinet full of blades, her view that men were all the same. No son of mine was a feminist who baked cakes during the hysterectomy and brought them in a stolen van though he was only fifteen. He sang me songs by Robert Burns and awards by the trees of Baloch Mile. No son of mine knew the actual difference between who I was and where I was going. But he made me laugh about the follies of men and made that part of me whole again with a smile as present as a missing husband. No son of mine was ever a feminist. Though I taught him everything he knows, the hymns and the songs and the danger zones, the way to be and not to be, though he saved me in the end. He wasn't a feminist, that's for sure. And I gave his books to the charity shop and in one of them I found a picture of us, the mother and her chauvinist son. Maybe one day he'll understand. It wasn't men I needed, just the one. Thank you.
1: Thank you. See, I knew this was going to be a good idea. <laughs> Thank you. Um, my next speaker is Caroline Creatas perez Caroline is a Brazilian-born freelance journalist and a broadcaster now living in London. She's also a feminist activist and was awarded the Liberty Human Rights Campaigner of the Year Award. Her first book, Do It Like a Woman, was published this year you will know her as the person who got the Bank of England to agree to put a woman on the English £10 note. Caroline.
3: Thank you. Um, For most of my life, I haven't actually been a feminist. If anything, I've been an anti-feminist. I resented the idea that I needed a movement to support me, a movement that positioned me as a delicate flower, a victim, someone who needed an extra leg up in life. Maybe other women were pathetic enough to need to be wrapped up in cotton wool, but not me. I wasn't much of a girl anyway. You know, I was more like one of the guys. Yes, I was one of those women. One of those girls who accepted the two-dimensional stereotype that passes for women in this culture of ours, who accepted that women are superficial, trivial, over-emotional, unreasonable, possessive, crazy, Just let me be the exception, yeah? The thing least likely to interest me was a movement that positioned me in solidarity with these lesser beings I was so desperate to escape. And I carried on this way until I was about 25. And I might still have been that girl, or I guess woman now, given that I am now a feminist, um, if I hadn't picked up a book called Feminism and Linguistic Theory by Deborah Cameron. Now, I'm sure you're sort of thinking feminism and linguistic theory doesn't really sound like the most obvious candidate for Feminist Awakening book, Uh, but it was mine because I'm full of fun and games. Um, And linguists have for a long time argued that language shapes our reality. We speak, therefore we understand. And Cameron applied this to gender. She wrote about the use of man to mean mankind and the use of he to mean he or she. and how tests showed that when people hear these words, they picture a man, which I guess is unsurprising, but it was a real shock to me at the time and I stopped short. You know, I'd heard people argue that the use of he was sexist, but I just sort of thought it was the usual feminist whining and ignored it. But Cameron's simple point that people actually picture a man when they hear those words really struck me because I realized that's exactly what I did and it went way beyond pronouns. When I thought of a doctor, I pictured a man. When I thought of a lawyer, I pictured a man. When I thought of a journalist, a politician, anyone with any position of authority or had a position in public life, I pictured a man. And so I started to wonder, could this be why I so easily believed that women were inferior despite all evidence to my own experience to the contrary? Could it be that having a mental world filled with powerful men had led me to hold an unfair impression of my own sex? Could it be that I was in fact not so different from all these women after all? Since then I've read more and I've learnt more and I know the stats. I know that only 13% of global news subjects are women and that in the UK men make up nine out of every ten subjects of political news stories. I know that 80% of experts in the media are men and 80% of case studies or victims are women. I know that women are most likely to appear in a full body shot accompanying an article and make up 80% of all pictures deemed irrelevant to the news story that they illustrate and I use the term illustrate advisedly. I know women make up only 28% of speaking roles in Hollywood films, only 17% of crowd scenes and only 22% of parliaments around the world. I know that the world presented to me is not the world as it really is. I know it is a world built by and for men, and I know that it is wrong that just because I am a woman, I should feel this pressure to convince each new person that I meet that I am not a two-dimensional stereotype, that I am a human being and should be treated accordingly. I am a feminist because women are human beings, and feminism is the movement that means that one day, that is a simple fact that will go without saying. Thank you. (laughs)
1: thank you Caroline thank you now my next speaker is from my country from Canada this is Natasha Canapé Fontaine she's a poet a painter an actor an activist for environment and indigenous rights from the North Shore community in Quebec She's a proud representative of the Innu people and part of the Idle No More movement which protects air, water, land, and all creation for future generations. She now lives in Montreal and has published two works of poetry to critical acclaim and award-winning. Her most recent collection is Manifesto Asi. Natasha.
4: Hi everyone. That's my first, uh, only in, in English uh, event in this um, this weekend. <laughs> Before I was with uh, my uh, my sisters in Inuit nation, you know, people from Canada, uh, Josephine Baco and Naomi Fontaine, and we have three women in uh, United Kingdom, and by the the Indian Act in Canada, we are, uh, we are called, we were called uh, really the queen's children uh, since uh, 250 years. And it's really strange for me to, to, to come here and reading some feminist <laughs> feminist poems, just to try, just to show to all the people of the world that the indigenous wo- indigenous women are just uh, waking up are just rising and maybe they will be able to bring to the world some light and some uh, Traditional values to respect more the women uh, of around the world Thank you <laughs> My forest cries all alone in silence Alice Jérôme And my earth seated under my feet during this silence A sea in Innu means earth. In the beginning, there is but her, her wand and her rim, her cosmogony of both both animal and vegetal kingdoms, the trees, the water, the wolves, and the hordes of caribou. Then there is the people, the Innu. There is me, strengthened by a new awakening, I will have had to have seen movement transform the face of crowds of my province, of my country, so that I I could attain this thunder-like force filled with spectacular hope. Precious water, sharp water, fierce water. I dance on the river, maneuvering the tiller of the medicine wheel. My thirst is a manifesto. Then there is Alberta Fort McMurray Athabasca where I stumble where I get hurt where I cry out the famine of my people where I will say to the whole universe this world stop the massacre I look around I do not see my children they have not yet been born my grandparents have all left all left without having told me anything. They did not foresee what will follow, struggle, resistance. They are mute on the other side. They do not speak. The spirits, however tense, they dance on the land. I receive their visions. Tell me, who believes in prophecies today? I come from this lineage, the lineage of hunters and braves. I am the daughter of those who walk in dreams, the granddaughter of shamans and healers, the sister of those who 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 spoke to the ancestors. I am the one who followed the marks on less than 40 degrees Celsius at night on the shores of the river. My earth, I will take her in my hand. I will nurse her with a piece of cloth, my dress. Will wipe her black tears in my hair, her count shakes. Will rock her as she shudders. I sleep no longer. Will put her to sleep on my knees. And wave to my ancestors, stuttering the yet to be born child that I am. O oh, man of little fate who taught me spineless, cut me down my back my limbs, my cross I shall bear, bear a tattoo to my dirty skins. Winter in our great love making, I am no borderland, I am nation multiple manifold. Multiplied, multiplied until under uh, your skin of pale redness. The sharp how on my veins, the word is body No, you tell me and I know. I throw myself without end, your spirit, you are my revolution. My madness, so delicate, dusk, pishmous, wash the humor in my mother. You could not read me when I spoke to you of dawn, the parallel dimension which suits us under our hands. Only my life, my soul, you don't listen, you are. Occident, arrogance in your sins. My forgiveness is love and no one. Of all crises from whence I come, it is impossible, they say, to love farther than death. Hope that you may be fierce. History, I dedicate to you the last of my songs. The earth is sister to the sea. I am the river's adul- adulterous spouse. I left my land afar, where my feet bat-, bat in the tranquility of the ancestors, the form of which I use as bleaches soap. Drawing the water from my streams. The seaweed roams claims with wonders. There is a celebration tonight, and the creatures from under my skirts to which I dance, to which I tap amidst the woman, my pain, that I may crush it, and I will make myself woman with the ears of my people. The last one. I am woman in one. I am daughter, mother, grandmother. I am my grandmother. My mother, me. I am the moon, the earth, the sea, my memory, my entrails, my blood, a tremor, a territory, an ancestral rumble, hurt and warm, depleted. I hit a giant, shriveled drum. Thank you.
1: Merci, that's what I'll say. Natasha, we've been forcing her to, sp- to do everything in English, which is very good. <laughs> um, next, um, I've asked Chris Brookmeyer to talk to us. Chris is from Glasgow, and he's the writer of the Jasmine Sharp and the Angelique, Angelique de Xavier crime fiction trilogies. More recently, the creator of Bedlam, one of the 1st first first-person shooter video games ever to feature a female protagonist. Who knew? He's written 18 novels and won many prizes. He's often described as writing strong female characters. He's often described as writing strong female characters which he says he understands is intended as a compliment but which he will consider less irritating on the first day someone else is described as writing strong male ones. Chris.
5: Hi there. Um, Obviously, as a a guy, I've got to tread quite lightly uh, when discussing feminism because if you come on too strong, going on about combating prejudice and battling for equality, you can start to sound like you think being a woman's a disability, you know. Sartorial indecisiveness is a very real problem affecting millions of women worldwide. Carol here can sometimes change her outfit up to five times before going out of an evening. Just two pounds a month from you can help us cure this condition. But I'm a feminist, or up to a point. Um, I think we can all agree this whole gender equality thing uh, has gone a wee bit too far. Because I know this because I read a piece recently on Breitbart.com entitled Why the Real Everyday Sexism is Against Men. Um, for those of you who don't know, Breitbart.com is this right-wing website where they use terms like SJW as a term for abuse. It stands for social justice warrior. The, f- the fact that they're disparaging people campaigning for social justice tells you all you need to know. But if you just tweak that a wee bit, you get... Uh, SWJ, which is actually a really accurate description of just about every Breitbart contributor, in that it stands for scared white journalist. <laughs> and this particular scared white journalist was, um, he was all tears and snotters because a bunch of <laughs> spoil sport feminists had objected to the inclusion in an exhibition at Wimbledon entitled Powerful Posters. They had objected to the inclusion of the Athena Tennis Girl. I don't know who curated the exhibition, but I'm thinking David Brent. And he wrote Cruelly outing the Athena Tennis Girl as in some way misogynistic felt like a sort of historical abuse ag- allegation against all men. Right. See these men and their over emotional, hysterical responses to things, you know. But then I thought maybe the feminists were being hypersensitive, and it was it should have been interpreted differently. Maybe the Athena tennis girl is an icon celebrating women's commitment to sport, <laughs> in that what it shows is a woman who was so keen to get into the game that she completely forgot to put on any pants. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, you know, maybe this this. This hypersensitivity is is why this article was bemoaning what it called the drip-drip narrative of the everyday sexism project. Because after all, things like the Athena Tennis Girl, it's just a bit of fun. See, why do you women have to take everything so seriously all the time? It's got to the stage you can't even give a woman a compliment without being accused of sexism. That's the one that gets me, you see these guys that are complaining because they've just made a completely unsolicited remark about the appearance of a woman they barely know. (laughs) And they think it's all right because they said it was a compliment. (laughs) See, see, I hear that. I always think this guy, I imagine this guy, let's call him Tom, right? I always (laughs) like to imagine Tom the next day starting a job at this all-male company. Where he suddenly realizes he's the only heterosexual in the building. And his boss is Gregor. Gregor is six foot five, eighteen stone of tattooed, muscle-bound, predatory libido. <laughs> Shakes Tom's hand and goes, You smell gorgeous. <laughs> he then introduces Tom at his first presentation by saying, we're very lucky to have Tom. He's joining the team. He's Not only has Tom got an MBA from Harvard, but he's very easy on the eye, as I'm sure, I'm sure you can all agree. Very fetching suit, Tom. Gregor goes on to spend the entire presentation staring at Tom's crotch and licking his lips. And when Gregor looks at you, he's not so much undressing you with his eyes as redressing you in assless chaps, handcuffs and a ball gag. And Tom overhears Gregor after the presentation talking about it and going, I'm no sure about his numbers, but I wouldn't mind filling in his spreadsheet. (laughs) So Tom has a wee word about how he's been introduced. And Gregor can't understand it. It's like... For God's sake, Tom, I was just trying to give you a compliment. (laughs) And anyway, if you don't want folk looking at you, why did you dress so provocatively? (laughs) That suit just says, I'm smoking hot and I know it. (laughs) So at the end of the day, Tom gets an email summoning him to Gregor's office. It's dark, the blinds are drawn, and there's nobody else left in the building. Gregor closes the door and Tom notices that there's a poster on the wall of a guy who was so keen to play tennis (laughs) that he completely forgot to put any pants on. Do you like that poster? He looks game, doesn't he? Game for a wee bit of sport. Tom says, actually, that poster makes me feel very uncomfortable, to which Gregor says, oh, for God's sake, it's just a wee bit of fun. See, you heterosexual men, why do you have to take everything so seriously? (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Chris.
1: (laughs) Next is Jo Clifford. Jo is a playwright, a performer, a father, a grandmother, originally from Derby, who now lives in Edinburgh. She has been performing her play, The Gospel According to Jesus, Queen of Heaven, throughout the fringe. Joe is the author of 80 or so performed plays in every dramatic medium, the first openly transgendered woman to have a play performed in London's West End. Joe.
6: Hello. This happened to me some years ago, when I was first beginning to live as a woman. And I was walking down the Royal Mile late one night, on my way home from a party, when I met a man. And the man said to me, excuse me, madam. And I was so happy. And then he started to apologize, I'm so sorry. So sorry, he kept saying, and I thought, why? Why are you apologizing? You've just accepted me for who I am. And he started to say, you should kick me up the ass. That's what you should do. You'd have every right to kick me up the ass. And I'm thinking, why? And then I understand. Now he sees me as a man. And there is no worse insult one man can pay another than to call him a woman and that's why i'm a feminist things are a little bit easier now men of a certain age open doors for me and give up their seats in buses and sometimes offer to carry my bags and sometimes they even help me across the road And when they talk to me, they use this strange, condescending tone, as if I'm (laughs) half-witted. And I'm thinking, what's happening? Nobody ever spoke to me that way before. And I think, am I looking stupid all of a sudden? No. I'm looking like a woman. And that's why I'm a feminist. The other week, I was down in London and I walked into my hotel lobby and I met four young men in suits coming out. And I felt their gaze on me, appraising me. And I knew what they were thinking. They were thinking old, fat, ugly, no good in bed, does not exist, yeah. And so they looked straight through me and walked on. And that's why I'm a feminist. And I'd like to give a message to those smug young men. I'd want to say something like, listen, dears, I now belong to half the human race and although it's true that for thousands and thousands of years we have been oppressed and despised and thought little of and our voices have not been heard, things are slowly and painfully And in spite of all manner of reverses and heartbreaking difficulties, things are now changing. We women are beginning to discover our power. And we women are beginning to speak and our voices are starting to be heard. And wherever this happens, the world becomes a better place. And that's why I'm a feminist.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Robin Robertson. Robin is from the northeast coast of Scotland. He's published five collections of poetry and received a number of awards, including three forward prizes. His selected poems, Sailing the Forest, is just published. He is also a publisher, in fact, a colleague of mine really, a publisher at Jonathan Cape, and he looks after the work of over 50 authors, including two of the authors long-listed for this year's Man Booker Prize. Bill Clegg and Anne Enright. Robin.
7: Thank you. Well, as far as I'm concerned, um, feminism is about equality. Um, This is, though, a poem about inequality. Um, It's uh, one of a series of Invented Scots folk narratives uh, that share some common thematic ground with the Scottish folk tradition. That is to say, their um, everyday stories of murder, rape, uh, enchantment, and transformation. This is called At Roan Head. You'd know her house by the drawn blinds, by the cormorants pitched on the boundary wall, the black crosses of their wings hung out to dry. You'd tell it by the quicken and the pine that hid it from the sea and from the brief light of the sun, and by Angus the collie lying at the door where he died, a rack of bones like a sprung trap. A fork of barnacle geese came over with that slow squeak of rusty saws, the bitter seas complaining pull and roll, a wicker of pigeons lifting in the wood. She'd had four sons. I knew that well enough, and each one wrong. All born blind, they say. Slack-jawed and simple, web-footed, rickety as sticks. Beautiful faces, I'm told, though blank as air. Someone saw them once outside, hurtling down to the shore, chittering like rats, and said they were fine swimmers, but I would have guessed at that. Her husband left her, said they couldn't be his they were more fish than human said they were beglamoured, and searched their skin for the showing marks for years she tended each difficult flame their tight flickering bodies each night she closed the scales of their eyes to smoor the fire until he came again that last time thick with drink saying he'd had enough of this all this witchery and made them stand in a row by their beds twitching their hands flapped herring eyes rolled in their heads he went along the line relaxing them one after another with a small knife It said she goes out every night to lay blankets on the graves to keep them warm. It would put the heart across you, all that grief. There was an otter worrying in the leaves, a heron loping slow over the water when I came at Scrake of Day back to her door. She'd hung four stones in a necklace, wore four rings on the hand that led me past the room with four small candles burning, which she called the Room of Rain. Milky smoke poured up from the grate like a waterfall in reverse, and she said my name and it was the only thing and the last thing that she said. She gave me a skylark's egg in a bed of frost, gave me twists of my four sons' hair, gave me her husband's head in a wooden box, then she gave me the seal skin, and I put it on. Thank you.
8: Thank
1: you. Emma Laurie. Emma I met through Val. Emma's from Glasgow and was last year awarded her PhD from the University of Glasgow. She's an activist in the politics of health, human rights and social justice, particularly in Dar es Salaam. She is looking at how inequalities become personalized and has discovered that there's nothing theoretical about helping women fight for the most basic of rights. Here is a woman who's been on the front line, Emma.
9: Around seven years ago, during a lecture at uni, we were asked who in the hall was a feminist. A few folk raised their hands, but I most certainly wasn't one of them. Maybe this was a naive fear that if I said yes, I'd be asked to leave my makeup bag behind at the end of class. Or a sense at that point that my working-class identity was far stronger than my gendered identity. Either way, there was no chance I was calling myself a feminist. But I saw my personal politics tested and transformed when I started going to Tanzania for my PhD research and speaking with women living in poverty. In theory, I knew the gendered inequality in the Global South and could recite any number of statistics on it. But then, statistics aren't just numbers. And I wasn't quite prepared for hearing the personal testimonies from the women sitting by my side. The testimonies about the daily assaults made in their dignity and womanhood. In Tanzania, anyone needs to pay in order to see a doctor get hospital and get medication. And the lens that the women went to in order to get themselves or their children to hospital was quite harrowing. This was brought home in every interview that I did but particularly in one where all four women in the group were the same age as I. One of them spoke of being beaten by her ex-partner when she went to try and get money from him to get their kid to hospital. She felt she had to endure this violence for the sake of her child. Another woman in the group talked about how she had no one who would lend her any money when her kid was unwell. She therefore had to go to a bar and find a man who would pay her to have sex with her. She talked about the risk that she was taking for her own health, but again felt that she had no other option open to her. In her own words, she told me, a woman always walks with her capital. When you have nothing else to sell, you sell yourself. These words have never left me, coming from a woman my own age. I came to understand generally how the illiteracy caused by early gendered inequality in schooling meant that many of the women I spoke with were unable to complete written complaint forms in hospital when they were poorly treated. Adding to their feelings of being utterly voiceless, powerless and devalued and easily exploited. But even at this point, I wasn't ready to call myself a feminist. Because whilst the interviews on the one hand had revealed to me a very personal extent of global gender inequality, they'd also made me confront my utter privilege and forced me to admit my place in the global order. I had a difficult time reconciling the fact that I was benefiting from this inequality, both large scale and the fact that we all in the West benefit from the inequality and the oppression of those in the global South, in particular women. But also on a really personal level for me, Because the women that I was interviewing, I was taking their words and then writing it into my PhD. I was becoming a doctor on the back of their inequality. I was further writing myself into a position of privilege. How could I have the audacity to call myself a feminist when I was gaining so much from their oppression? I had a massive fear of arrogantly appropriating other people's voices, other people's stories and retelling them as my own. And this became so debilitating that I became close to walking away from a PhD so that I didn't have to consider how I navigated this. But then what good would walking away do? Ignoring oppression is itself a privilege. So seven years on, in front of the lecturer who first asked whether I was a feminist or not, I will raise my hand and now say I am a feminist. I've learnt the need to stand up for myself here, but also check my privilege and stand up for the women that I encountered in Dar es Salaam. Don't get me wrong, I'd know it be far better if any one of those women were here telling their stories today rather than hearing them through me. But if having a PhD does afford me some sort of authority, then I should exploit that. If being offered a microphone and a platform is made, then I should take that. And although I still constantly fear appropriation I've come to the point of thinking that perhaps the only thing worse than hearing a privileged Western white woman speaking out about gender inequality in the global south is having a privileged Western white woman staying quiet about it.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Nish Kumar. Nish is from London, a political stand-up comedian, actor, and radio presenter. He's come. He ran literally from his the Pleasance show, his last show at the Pleasance tonight, and doing long word, long word, blah blah blah. I'm so clever. He's a regular on Radio 4, a veteran of the Edinburgh Fringe, where his shows are critically acclaimed, and he was one of the shortlisted for this year's prize of the Foster's Comedy Award. Nish.
10: Thanks very much. Hi, everyone, how are you? Good, sorry, it's a force of habit, I'm afraid. Um, it's very nice to be here. Uh, my talk is divided into sort of three subsections. Uh, one is genetics, uh, the other is response to basic facts, and the third one is my career. Uh, those are the three areas that I want to talk about about why I'm a feminist. Before I get into that, I want to share a sort of, as by way of a sort of preamble, some concerns. One of which is practical, and the rest of which is sort of part of my general anxiety. Now, the first practical concern is I've pretty much lost my voice, so unfortunately that means this entire talk is essentially going to be delivered by Tom Waits or late period Billie Holiday, so in advance I apologize for that. My second concern is a sort of more general one. I really do not belong on this panel. I cannot emphasize how inadequate I feel up here to the extent that I can't really speak off notes, so I was going to use the handheld mic, but there was a part of me that was genuinely going to just read off a blank piece of paper so it looked like I'd prepared, like... So I'm aware, I feel very, you know, humbled and, uh, you know, I, I know that I'm not good enough to be here in some ways, right? My other concern is very often as a male feminist, I always feel like... Whenever I talk about feminism, it carries a sort of weird atmosphere into the room. There's almost a sense, whenever I say anything about feminism, that it's partly a man going, listen, ladies, sit down, let a man teach you about feminism, for once. So I I feel very anxious about that. So I just want you to know that all of that information is going on. There's one person clapping there. I hope to God it's not a man. Um, The, the other reason that I feel a huge amount of anxiety here is that you're all paying attention. I'm a stand-up comedian who largely fights for audiences' attention and dodges flying beer cans. So, And there's two lovely ladies down the front writing things down. That does not happen at a stand-up gig so those are the sort of anxieties so the reason I call myself a feminist so let's start with genetics I believe that feminism uh, like my double jointedness a genetic propensity to diabetes and my love of cricket is something that's been handed down through my family uh, my family comes from Kerala which is a state in the southwest part of India um, it's a very interesting place for a number of different reasons one of which is the specific, the specific part of the a country that my family comes from because my family practices a system of matrilineal inheritance that means that I inherit myself Surname and any sort of family wealth entirely through my mother's side. And when it comes to passing down wealth from one generation to another, the girls get first pick. Now, I'm not going to stand here and pretend that we've got a sort of perfect utopian society. Uh, Women getting into tertiary education has been frowned upon for years. But what I'm telling you is, it inculcates within all of us, uh, boys or girls, that women are to be valued, and it also leads to me being raised by a generation of women that I would describe as formidable, which is obviously a euphemism for absolutely terrifying, right? (laughs) So I believe it's been handed down to me uh, genetically, right? In terms of facts and a response to basic facts. I am sick and tired of being told by right-wing commentators that feminism has achieved its aims, when it patently has not. Uh, The whole aim of feminism is to achieve gender equality. And we are in a situation where, of all of the FTSE 100 companies, more of them are currently run by men called John than women in total. And the worst thing about that is that women aren't second, David is second, right? (laughs) So what I'm seeing is, uh, feminism is simply a response to the basic facts of things that are happening all around us. Now, the third thing I wanna talk about, and really the most important thing, and the thing that I'm most qualified to talk about, is my career. I'm a comedian, notionally. (laughs) Sometimes that's more true than others, right? But I'm a comedian, and as such, I'm judged uh, in reviews, and by audience members, and by people online, as to how funny I am. If people find me funny, they think they like me. If people don't find me funny, they don't like me. It's a very simple equation, and it should be for all comedians. But it simply isn't the case, because there's an important caveat to the phrase that I'm a comedian. I'm a male comedian, and as such, I have an entirely different experience of the comedy industry than women do. If you want to know how far feminism still has to go, I suggest you have a chat with a female comedian for a couple of minutes, and you'll understand that the things that they experience are so much different from my experience. And these are my friends, that are constantly judged on an entirely different, they're judged on their looks, they're constantly if you look at the comments page under any of my YouTube videos, it'll be, it's just a blizzard of things saying, unfunny, asshole, unfunny, asshole, this guy's not funny. <laughs> Which is fair enough, right? That's completely open to interpretation. But if you go on a female comedian's YouTube videos, it tends to be, uh, this bitch should go to hell. I wouldn't, no one would ever have sex with this woman. She's so ugly. It's incredibly noticeable how the values of how we judge male and female comedians are completely different. I was asked in an interview which comedians had most influenced me, and I said Bridget Christie, who's an amazing comedian. The interviewer, who was herself female, paused and said, you were influenced by a female comedian. And I said, yes. And she said, how is that possible? (laughs) I mean, just to be clear, we're all speaking the same language. It was absolutely baffling to me. Even within the comedy industry, beyond live comedy, uh, in television, the BBC has re- recently issued an edict that means every panel show has to feature one woman on it, which obviously famously reflects the statistic we all know that one in seven people is a woman. <laughs> we all know it. I mean, do it, this room more than anyone knows, understands that statistic. <laughs> And that has attracted the ire of men's rights commentators. Just in case anyone wasn't aware, there are people campaigning for men's rights. Men's rights. Men's rights. Men's rights. <laughs> or as we call them for 2,500 years, rights. There is no need <laughs> to still campaign for that. The penis remains a powerful legislative tool, right? <laughs> Now, this is the second most terrifying thing that I've done uh, this month, right? The first was a play that I performed called Man Watching, which is a play that the Royal Court's putting on uh, up here in Edinburgh for a limited season, where they invite male comedians to come on and read a script. Now, that script is uh, not sent to you, and you have no idea what the content is going to be until you open it on stage. So while I was reading it on stage, I discovered that this script is a first-person account of female sexuality. It's about the writer's sexuality. Now, the writer has chosen to remain anonymous. and. I was reading it and really enjoying it. It was very challenging and very difficult because I'm neither an actor nor a woman, famously, right? <laughs> and I didn't... But all throughout the piece, I was wondering why she had chosen to do this, why she had chosen to remain anonymous and why she chosen to have a man read out w- the words that she'd written. And towards the end of the piece, I wouldn't give too much more away other than this, but one of the things that the writer said was that as a society, we just value the male voice more. And moreover than that, as a female writer, if you write anything about sex, you're simply dismissed as a sex writer. And those are two things that I'd never even considered previously. And what I thought was really interesting was that I felt a tremendous amount of empathy for this person. And ultimately, that's how I feel about feminism in general as a man. If you're a male feminist, all you're trying to do is empathise with the struggles that women are going through. And that's why I call myself a feminist. Thank you.
1: You'll notice there's only one chair, unoccupied now. And this is for our last speaker, Elif Shafik. Elif is a Turkish author and academic who divides her time between Istanbul and London. She has published 14 books, nine of which are novels. Her books have been published in more than 40 countries. She is an active political commentator, columnist and public speaker. She's an award-winning novelist and the most widely read woman in Turkey. She is an active Twitter, um, tweeter rather, and she has 1.7 million followers um, and she writes in Turkish and English. Elif.
8: Thank you. For me, the question, why am I a feminist, can best be answered through stories and in my personal story, two women have played a prominent role. One of them was my mother, the other one my grandmother. And these were completely different in, in their personalities in terms of their characters. My mother got married at the age 19. She fell in love and she thought love was enough. She, would, she didn't need education, so she dropped out of university and she followed my father from Turkey to France. They took the train. Um, three years later, she made the same journey back, alone, without um, without a degree, without a diploma, without money, without any place to go, and with a toddler, with a baby in her arms, as a divorcee. So we came to Ankara into this very conservative Muslim neighbourhood, where women in such positions, in such situations, are usually immediately married off to someone older than themselves, because they're not in a very top position anymore in the marital market. You know, they're not, they're not virgins anymore. And if you have a child to boot, then you're somewhere at the, at the bottom level. So they immediately tried to find a husband for her. But my grandmother intervened and she, and this is a woman who is less educated, more superstitious, spiritual, if I may say, irrational, more Eastern. And she was the one who said, no, wait a minute, you need to go back to university. You should have choices in life. You should have a diploma. You should have your own career. You should earn your own money. If you want to get married, then get married. But in the meantime, I'm going to take care of my grandchild. So in my early years, I grew up calling my mother abla, which in Turkish means big sister. And I saw my grandmother as my mother. And these were, as I said, very, very different uh, women in their personalities. My grandmother was very much into oral culture. And from my mother, I think I got my, my love for written culture. But I observed that these two women could exist under the same roof and support each other. So for me, feminism is primarily about sisterhood. It's the kind of sisterhood that transcends boundaries, ethnic, religious, national, class boundaries. It's also for me about silences, you know, giving voice to silences. For me, feminism is about memory, remembering the works of women who did not have equal uh, the the chances that we have today, and who struggled more than we do today. So remembering them and appreciating their work. So it's about memory. But it's also about magic, you know, the magic and the lightness and the joy and the pleasure that has been taken away from us, just demanding those things back. We always say, we often say that it's not easy to be a woman in a patriarchal society. That is true. But I always believe that it's not easy to be a man in a patriarchal society either, especially if you're the kind of man who doesn't conform to the dominant understanding of masculinity it is not a coincidence that in patriarchal societies homophobia is also very deep these things go in ha- hand in hand in fact i think not only homophobia but xenophobia also exists very deeply in such societies because where there's fear of women there's fear of the other as a writer it, oh, i'm always intrigued to see i have many ri- readers in turkey who are very homophobic you know if you talk to them Uh, They will express this openly. But then they come to me and they say, you know, I read your novel, and I like this character. And the character they're talking about is maybe transsexual or bisexual or gay. But they somehow empathize despite their prejudices. Somehow they connect. Fiction does that, storytelling does that. I have many xenophobic readers who are very biased against Armenians, particularly, and Jews, particularly. But then again, they come and they say, you know, in your novel, this is the character that I loved most. So I am a big believer that stories can, you know, change things, can shake things. But overall, you know, I come from Turkey and the region where I come from in the Middle East. If you travel, you will notice that streets belong to men. Public squares belong to men. Sexual harassment is a is a is a daily routine. You know, women exchange stories of how you have to use needles and carry safety pins when you go on the bus. It's just normal in our daily lives. The Sufis in the past they used to talk about this balance between masculine energy and feminine energy. They saw the human being as a microcosmos, the reflection of the uni- universe. And in the universe, they said these two energies had to be in balance. If this is true, I think that balance is broken in many parts of the world. The balance between masculine and feminine energy is broken. And women are constantly being pushed to the private space. We are reminded that our primary role is being mothers, wives. We need to come into the public space and restore that that balance. And in Turkey, the word feminism is oftentimes belittled. It is ridiculed. It's looked down upon, and sometimes in the mouth of, through the words of top-level senior politicians, it is used as an accusation, you know, these feminists. You you hear these things all the time. And because, because it is so ridiculed all the time, even though I am, you know, as a storyteller, I just want to be, as a writer, I just want to be a storyteller without any isms attached. I just want to be simply a storyteller, but because feminism, is constantly demonized, because it's constantly misunderstood, deliberately misunderstood, and most importantly, because it's needed, urgently needed, not only in the Middle East, but I believe all over the world, because of all these things, I call myself a feminist. Thank you.
1: I had a notion this was going to be pretty amazing, and it was. I really want to say thank you to all of you. Really extraordinary. That is why we call ourselves feminists. This is what feminism looks like. And now, to the signing tent and a drink. (laughs)